All right, Miss Bonnie, I'll turn it over to you. Several years ago, Jim and I were on a mission trip in Cat Island in the Bahamas, 
and Bahamas Air is the only thing that flies in and out of there. So, and just sort of upon a whim whenever they decide to. So we're sitting with the mission team at the airport expecting a Bahamas Air flight at some point, and all we could do was sing, I'll fly away. <laughs> <laughs> so every time you do that, that runway comes right back to my mind. All righty, thank you all so much, Bonnie and the, what do you call five, Quintet? The RUMC yep. Boys Choir. The RUMC <laughs> Boys Choir. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to say the word for six then. Okay, there we go. And thank you, Virginia and Linda, and was uh, Martha Jane back there singing beforehand. We enjoy that so much. Good morning. And no, I'm not Scott. But Scott is here with us again today. Many of you know him already from because he's been in CUC many times and has taught us he's an excellent teacher. We're proud to have you again today, Scott. Scott will start today his first of a three-part series. So if you will, please join me in saying a big welcome to Scott. Let's see if I got all my stuff up here. I always snag extra napkins because I know that in the summertime my drinks sweat, so i got to keep them. Um, that music was great. So if y'all want to have more music like that, it's camp meeting season. Y'all know that, right? And Salem starts on Friday. Salem, in my mind, I'm at a bunch of the camps around here. Salem is the best, 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 best. Started by Methodists in 1828. It's out uh, on Salem Road between Conyers and Covington. Exit 84. It's an easy ride. There's a Cracker Barrel right there. You can get dinner before you get there. That's what I do. Um, 7.45 every evening, they have special music. 8 o'clock, they start preaching. Or if you want to go midday, there's preaching in the midday, too. But it starts Friday and runs till the following Friday. And the bishop's preaching on Sunday. So, uh, But don't go to that, because you'd miss me. Um, <laughs> um, so today, we, we're starting three weeks to talk about, about John Wesley's societies and, and his how he encouraged the people who were part of the early Wesleyan movement um, kind of what his expectations were out of him. And I have to make a confession uh, before I get too far into this lesson that, that, you know, I did this, put this together a long time ago for the seekers and then didn't do it for a long time and forgot <laughs> because my slides are pictures. Let me get them up here. So we'll talk about John Wesley's simple rules. And this is how I began, right? So I looked at and I opened up the slide deck and I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? I had no idea. Luckily, um, the Seekers record everything. So I went to Myron Seagraves and I said, can you get me a recording of when I did this before so I could remember? But this guy looks pretty intense, right? This is... John Wesley DeShazo. This is my great-great-great-grandfather, born in 1837. He was born um, over, over between here and Birmingham in Leeds, Alabama. Moved on, uh, well, by the time of the Civil War, he was still there, and he enlisted. And he was a, you know, a young farmer at that point, was starting a young family. But during the war, 
he got the call and began preaching during the war and began living out that call during the war so that he began doing things on purpose, finding that purpose in his life. And at the end of the war, we find him not on the battlefield, but as chaplain at Chimborazo Hospital in Richmond, which if you remember history, was some ugly stuff going on up there, right? And that's where they sent a lot of folks to Chimborazo. And so he went on and, and preached throughout Mississippi and then to Arkansas and was in western Arkansas late in his life. But, but it was focus, and you can see the focus in his eyes, you know. Um, he had a bunch of kids. He had three wives and a whole family with each one. Um, but, but that focus and that doing things on purpose really fit in with what John Wesley had to say. This is... His name is the Reverend O.S. Baketel. In the 1870s, a book was written called Elements of Methodism, a little tiny book. And as it turns out, it, it kind of lays out the, the basics of what we as Methodists believe, how we understand how God works in the world, how we understand the role of grace in salvation. And, and it's, it's a series of lectures, essentially, that were put together into a small book that remained in print for, from like 1870 until way into the 1930s. Um, eventually, Max Stokes wrote a new book uh, called Elements of Methodism that, that is a more modern approach to it that I recommend you get a, a hold of and take a look at. Even better than that is Maxie Dunham's Going On to Salvation. But that book, this book, lays out what, what Methodists believe, how John Wesley was explaining the role of grace, the role of, 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 of salvation, how we come to be saved, and how we move on to sanctification after that. Now, as it turns out, my little brother was looking for a Christmas present for me and found this book, and he thought, wow, Scott would like that, and it's printed in 1879, and he gave it to me, and it turns out there's a book plate in it that says, from the library of the Reverend O.S. Baketel. He was Bishop of Vermont. And that's kind of cool, right? To become a bishop, one has to be focused. And, and he lived a life where he was focused. He did things on purpose. He went on to do things like, he wrote a concordance of the hymnal. Right? Y'all know what a concordance is, right? Where you note where every word was used. That sounds tedious. <laughs> but if you're looking for worship music, it's a great thing to have. I, when I lived in Pennsylvania, there was a guy in our church who didn't carry his Bible to church. He carried his hymnal. He had been there for 60 years and had noted every time every hymn had been used. And so when the pastor wanted to pick a song, he went to Ken because Ken, by golly, knew. He knew all about it. But so... That focus that carried through his life is an important thing, right? So he had found a direction. He had found what he needed to do. And a lot of times we'll kind of drift along and we won't think about where we're going to be when we get where we're going. We just end up somewhere, right? And I'm not necessarily talking about having a grand purpose in your life, hearing the call like, like uh, John DeShazo did and going into ministry. I'm talking about what are the implications of the things that we do in even little ways? 
I'm a, y'all know Jerry Clower. Y'all know Jerry Clower. Yeah. So I mean Jerry Clower's great. He's grand old Albert. My granddad actually was a customer of his back when he was selling feed and chemical. Back in the fifties, right? But he has a little piece that talks about where will you be when you get where you're going. And why don't we try that? We'll see if it works. Everybody ought to know what to do when they get ready to do something. When I was a student in college, I was walking across the campus one day and I saw a big sign in front of the YMCA. It said, where will you be when you get where you're going? So I got out flat there on the bull ring and I sat down I got thinking, Jerry, where will you be when you get where you're going? That's a good question. At college, I rededicated my life to make sure I knew proof positive in my heart. I knew where I'd be when I get where I'm going. Earlier in my life, I didn't do that. One day we was cleaning out a pig parlor. <laughs> and there's a bunch of rats there. And man, we was cleaning out that pig parlor and trying to kill them rats. Them great big old rats that run up under an old chicken brooder. Now you visualize an old chicken brooder just like a funnel that you pour liquid through. Turn it bottom side upwards and make it big as a number three wash tub. And picture little biddies hovering up under that around a coal oil lamp. That was a chicken brooder. Well, this was wow. And every time we'd flush one of them big old mean stinking rats, he'd run up on that chicken brooder. Well, when we got on, cleaning up the pig parlor, there must have been 200 of them big old rats up under that. My brother Sonny said, go get the gasoline. <laughs> yeah, go get the gasoline. We went and got two gallons of gas, eased up on the top and poured her down in there. Just saturated it good and poured us a stream of gas way off out there. And my brother struck that kitchen match again, throwed it down. Shh! Boom! That brooder went up like the atomic bomb mushroom cloud. <laughs> but 200 balls of fire started running everywhere. <laughs> and most of them 200 balls of fire were running toward a barn that had five and bales of hay. <laughs> and we get a pine drop and try to hit them off. And that's one time I didn't know where I'd be when I got where I was going. <laughs> so, you know, that's that whole whole idea of, of thinking about what's going to happen. What are the implications of the things that we do? Everything we do has some sort of, of effect, right? It trickles down the line. Little things can have unintended consequences. We talk about the law of unintended consequences. And, and I think that's a lot of what John Wesley is encouraging people to think about as we go along, is to, to think about what you're doing and to focus on, on how would one, filled with the Holy Spirit, living as a saved person, how would you live? Now, that's my, my dad and my little brother and my granddad. And, and we'll come back around to them as we go along, but we're examples to other people. So my granddad has been a fabulous example. My dad has been a great example. I sent my dad a note one time. There's so many goofy stories about my dad. 
But it occurred to me one time around Father's Day that every time there's a dumb story of something my dad has done, it's been while he's in the midst of helping somebody else that he's done something goofy. My wife met my father when he was helping me move, and he's sitting there with a donut in one hand, eating another one, said, where are we going to lunch? Right? <laughs> you know, goofy stuff like that. But it's that example that, that they've set an example now for my brother and me, and now for my nephew. And, and so my little brother is really the focus here. He, he's awful when it comes to directions. The one thing he learned is that he has no sense of direction at all. So he asks. He stops and asks for directions. He learned this in high school. If he'll stop and ask for directions, and he won't try to remember everything he's told, just the first three things. I can remember three, and then I can stop and ask again. Right? That's his approach. And that does well for him. Except for now he lives in Detroit, so it's maybe not quite as good of an idea as it once was. He works downtown, right? So you don't want to stop at eight mile and ask. Um, so, But the thing is that we all need directions. We need a map. We need a guideline. We need to understand. We come to become Christians. We get saved. We come to know God. We, we, we get introduced to Jesus, and then it's, Okay, so now what? Now what? How do I live the way that I ought to? How do I how can I be the person that that I've signed up to that God is hoping and God is expecting me to? So we need a map. We need some directions. Sometimes it's a straight line. I mean, it's it's simple to get here from my house. It's come straight down Crab Apple Road, right? But sometimes it's more complicated and we need to stop and ask directions again and again. So we have directions, right? We've got the Bible. We say, well, how are you going to, well, the Bible is going to give us the, what we need to, to live out that life. But, you know, that's kind of big and complicated. And how many of y'all been doing that read the Bible in a year? Okay, and so when you were reading through Leviticus, <laughs> what part of that were you getting? <laughs> right? Not so much. And, and so... We need more help, and Israel needed help too. You know, so we, we we have we have kind of boil it down the Ten Commandments. But we sort of think of when I ask for guidance, it's going to be Charlton Heston and the finger, and and maybe it's not quite like that. But but God has come to us through Scripture and given us that guidance for what we need to do, how we need to live. But we, you know, we kind of try to boil it down and sometimes we'll take the rules and make the rules the thing rather than the living out of the rules being the thing, right? We'll almost make an idol out of the rules themselves and hold the rules up without understanding what's behind them, without understanding what are the unintended consequences of that, without understanding how it is that God wants us to behave towards God and towards each other, right? So, so the, the Ten Commandments are an interesting thing. They, they give us a list of, here's things you ought to do. Here's things you ought not to do. But they begin with, thou shalt love the Lord your God, right? And they, they sort of set out the first things first. So we've had that guidance, but as we've gone along, right, so what happened in the history of Israel? They took the ten, and they said, well, okay, so what exactly does it mean to honor your father and your mother? And they start making rules. What exactly does it mean to, to, uh, to keep the Sabbath to the point where 
they had rules that said if you take this many steps, that's acceptable. If you take one more step, you've now violated the Sabbath law, right? Is that what God intended? Is that what God's looking for in us to make rules to get around? My wife trained as an environmental engineer. She got a master's degree in environmental engineering because she cared about the environment, at least as as you know, she was you know idealistic college student and stuff. <laughs> then she went to work and found that that's not what environmental engineers do. Environmental engineers see how close to the line I can step, right? If you're working for for the commercial sector, if you're working for the government, you're how far can I push that line the other way? But it's not about the environment; it's about the line. It's about the line, right? And there's so many things where the rule becomes the idol rather than the living out of the rule that becomes the idol. So we kind of make idols out of the Ten Commandments. Jesus wasn't too keen on that. Israel was told from the start, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Bind it on your doorposts. Write it on your hands. Right? Why do, why do Orthodox Jews wear the things on their hands? Because they carry the words of the Lord with them. And the key is not to carry the whole thing. It's to live it out. To make that a part of you. Jesus took it a step further when he was asked, well, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, that starts getting into, he is immediately challenged, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? And then we get the story of the Good Samaritan immediately following it. Who's my neighbor? With people trying to figure out what do I have to do and what do I not have to do? How can I, how can I just sort of muddle along without being purposeful? So we've had guidance, but, but it's always been kind of hard to figure out. The monks, we've talked about the monks. The monks went to the desert to try to figure out what does it mean to live out the life that God wants us to live. They went to the desert to try to work as a group of people together and as individuals to figure it out. And, and there, people like John the Dwarf, St. John the Dwarf, he, he really tried to understand it. In a group of people where they revered their, the Abba, the father, the leader, the older folks were especially held in reverence, the monks were sitting at table for dinner and, and one of the, the old Abbas got up and was bringing around a drink. Would you like some more tea? And everybody's like, oh no father, no father, no father. And John the dwarf says, absolutely I'll have some. And they're like, how do you dare? You're just a young kid. How do you dare accept this from, from the father? And he's like, if I serve you, it makes me feel good. If I allow him to serve me, it makes him feel good. How can I deny him that pleasure? Right? So it's in, in, in receiving, you're giving. Right? And that's the, the consequence. By not receiving, the folks sitting at table thought that they were doing him honor, but really they were not allowing him the pleasure of giving and serving. Right? And, and the monks would sit there and think about that and say, you know... Perhaps that's actually a prideful act on their part to refuse the gift, to refuse to be served by someone. And they would really try to figure out what does that mean. And, and John the Dwarf was just a great one with that sort of story. And, but it's, it's still people struggled years and years and years and years. So we come to the time 
of the 17, mid-1700s, early 1700s, 1730s. And John Wesley is on the scene. John Wesley is, is teaching at Oxford. John Wesley is in a world where the Church of England is the Church of the Land. The Church of England is headed by the king. Right, The archbishop reports to the king, but the king is the head of the church as it's structured. And it's a Christian nation. When you're born, you're baptized because that's what citizens of the country do. And sometimes you go to church, sometimes you don't, but it's, nobody thinks about it. It's not a part of your daily life. And John Wesley is feeling like, you know, the spirit that brought us to church, the spirit that 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 brought us out of the early church, that brought us through the Middle Ages, that brought us through through the time of, of the Reformation, it's kind of dulled out. And now we're going through the motions. And, and we need to reinvigorate this. And he felt reinvigorated. He began, he began following the rules. Doing the things he thought he ought to do. John Wesley came to Georgia, essentially as a missionary. Didn't work out so well for him, right? It all, you know, I mean, when he wouldn't serve communion to the girl he thought was supposed to marry him who'd married somebody else and they ran him out of town, that just didn't go over well, right? <laughs> but so after that, now it's interesting to remember the timeline. We all remember John Wesley's Aldersgate experience where, where he felt his heart strangely warmed and really at that point felt the assurance of his salvation, the assurance of Christ in his life. This is way before that. This is several years before that. It's the foundations that led to that, that Aldersgate experience because on the boat is where he met the Moravians who helped him to understand assurance and helped him to understand the power of grace rather than the power of rules and the power of what you ought to do. So John Wesley began to form groups. People were coming to him. He had a, a club at, at Oxford and people were coming to him to try to understand how can we become a part of this? How can we become a part of, of that movement? Now, as this is going on, he's becoming more and more frustrated with, with the church and feeling that it needs reinvigoration. He never, ever, ever was trying to separate from the church. He was trying to reinvigorate the church. There's, there's a, a, a Go out and look around on the, the general board of Board of Global Ministries, I think, or it might be the Board of Discipleship's webpage. They have a section called the United Methodist Way. And, and it's folks who are again today feeling like we've kind of become a stagnant church. We, we don't have the excitement, the enthusiasm that came out of the Great Awakening that, that needs to be reinvigorated. And we need to recapture some of what Wesley was talking about. And, and so one of the things that Wesley did was he went out to the streets to preach, out to the fields to preach, to meet the coal miners at the mines. He wasn't keen on this at all. This was not an appropriate thing for a don of Oxford to be doing. But finally Whitfield talked him into it and he went out and that became one of the things that really began to help people to come to, to meet Christ. And in doing that, he began to establish his societies. Now the societies were small groups. They're journey groups. 
They were designed to be about 10 people. They were designed to have a leader. And, and you know, the funny thing is that they came together every week and they asked hard questions. And you were expected, expected to answer. They began with, so how have you sinned this week? Tell me about it. Would you want to be a part of a journey group that did that? We get real edgy about it. But that degree of accountability, that degree of openness and trust, that degree of of understanding the consequences of those actions that we find in Acts is what helped Wesley's movement really take off. And and look around a lot of the big churches now. Look at where there's look at where there's huge growth in in people coming to Christ. It's worth a lot of is expected of them. So these societies were groups of people who had come together for the purpose of of praying together and growing together and, and receiving the word together and watching over one another in love that they might help each other work out their salvation. Right? So they were they were they were understanding that they were all on a journey. Some of the people who came into these had been saved. Some of them were saw it in their future but hadn't made a commitment yet. They were in that stage of grace where where grace was moving within them but they haven't hadn't yet accepted Christ fully. But Wesley was not expecting that these groups were going to replace church. They were, in addition to, they were what made you excited about going and participating in the sacraments. The sacraments were the means of grace. The church itself was still the center. It was the bride of Christ. And, and Wesley was, was very keen on, you're going to go to church. You're going to go attend your church and attend to the sacraments. Um, only with the American Revolution did he actually agree to consecrate preachers because you know I had this little problem right so Church of England American Revolution we're not part of you anymore all of a sudden the preachers in America no longer had sacramental standing to consecrate the elements and so you needed to have you needed to have a, a, you know a, a, a chain of, of, of consecration so at that point a church was established in America which then took the Methodist Church back to the rest of the world but Wesley understood that we're on a journey that we have a hard time. We need directions. We need to figure out where we're going to be when we get where we're going and how to get there and what are the consequences of the things we talk about. And, and I think one of the things that really frustrated him was, was that the church felt like, we've dumped you. You're saved. You're done. Right? In the Church of England at that point. But he talked about a real salvation. He talks about salvation and he talks about the fact that 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 it's a race. That if you've stumbled, O seeker of God, do not just lie there fretting and bemoaning your weakness. Patiently pray, Lord, I acknowledge at every moment I would be stumbling if you were not upholding me. And then get up, leap, walk, go on your way, run with resolution the race in which you're entered. That That we have to run that race. That we're being... We're going side by side with Christ, but we have to be running the race. And so in these groups, these groups of people would come together to strive together, to run the race together, and they said, well, Mr. Wesley, how do we live? And so he gave guidance. But he didn't want the rules to become the idols. It wasn't about let's make the rules and then slice them thin. Grace and salvation are the core. Salvation doesn't come 
by following the rules. Salvation comes by faith. Salvation becomes, comes through the work of Christ in you. And the grace goes ahead of us to prepare us for that salvation. Grace justifies us and brings us into that right relationship. Grace is the thing that moves us along the path and sanctifies us. It's not the fact that we follow the rules. And that these societies were to help you to live out that life of grace, in grace, right? So it wasn't about making the rules primary. And when he talked about the salvation that, that he was talking about, it wasn't just dunked and done. He was talking about an active salvation present in your life today that helped you define not just where you're going to be when you get where you're going, but how you get there. What are the steps that you have to take? What are the next three turns that I need to make? And then I need to go to my group and stop and ask directions again. Right? By salvation, I mean not barely, according to the vulgar notion, deliverance from hell or going to heaven, but a present deliverance from sin, a restoration of the soul to its primitive health, its original purity, a recovery of the divine nature, the renewal of our souls after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness, in justice, mercy, and truth. That, that salvation helps us to move to become more and more like Christ every day. And, and this goes back to the monks as well. Actually, Wesley read the monks quite a lot. Gregory of Nyssa in the 6th century talked about the stages of love and the stages of our relationship with Christ where many times at first we'll serve God out of fear like a slave. You know, sort of like a, a, a hell insurance, if you will. Then we'll serve for desire for a reward, right? We'll serve God because we're going to go to heaven. It's, it's punch your ticket to heaven. But only in the last stage we serve God out of friendship with God, out of love of God as a child's love of God's household. That every day, that present salvation of what it's like today to move through life hand in hand with God. And, and that's where Wesley was talking about Christ wants us to be. He wants to be in that relationship with us. Now, who can join? How do you get in? How do you get into this club? Is it exclusive club? What do I have to do? You know, There's only one condition previously required of those who desire admission to the societies, a desire to flee from the wrath to come and to be saved from their sins. But wherever this is really fixed in the soul, it will be shown by its fruits. So, he's not exclusive. He's not saying you've got to be saved to be here. We want you to be here on the way to being saved. We, we want to work and journey together. But, you know, we kind of expect that if we're on this journey together, we'll see it in our lives. Right? Not salvation by works, but our salvation leads us to do things and behavior in particular ways. It's expected of all who continue in these societies that they should continue to evidence to evidence the desire for salvation by three rules. Don't get it wet. Keep it away from bright light. And never ever feed it after midnight. Y'all remember that movie? It's a great movie. Gremlins, right? That was the three rules for gremlins. You feed him after dark and get him wet and he becomes a million gremlins and they, it's a bad day all around. But no, three rules. We boil these down. Wesley called them the general rules for his societies. We boil them down into do good, 
do oh, do no harm, do good, love God. It seems simple. It seems simple. But you know, we're prone to take this and try to peel the onion again. There's, there's a really cool book that has come out, and I'll show you in a second, about this. But Wesley goes on to, to say it, and, and what we'll do for the next couple weeks is dig into these. So I kind of today want to say, well, what it is that we're going to try to talk about, and why do we need to have these rules? Because each time we've got rules in the past, we've somehow decided that the rules become the goal, rather than the thing that the rules lead us to becomes the goal. Wesley's rules first by doing no harm, by avoiding evil of every kind, especially that which is most generally practiced. And he goes on to list a long list, and we'll talk about that list. Secondly, by doing good, by being in every kind merciful after their power as they have the opportunity, doing good of every possible sort, and as far as possible to all men. So we'll talk about what Wesley means by doing good. And then thirdly, by attending upon all the ordinances of God. Stay in love with God. And so these three are still the basis of a lot of the things that are asked as a part of an ordination liturgy, right? That, that reinforces these are the, the general rules of the Methodist Church. And there's a big section on the, the general board of the board of disciples. Was it board of discipleship? It's, I forget which of the general boards it has. This. <clears throat> so Reuben Job, who was a bishop in the United Methodist Church, <clears throat> came out with the book. Three simple rules. Little bitty book. He has a study guide for it. It's three times it. <laughs> but you know, we've got a little bitty book. And there's libraries and libraries and libraries and buildings full of the study guide to go with it. Right? So that's not a surprise. But this is about... What does it mean to live out those rules? How can I put those into my life and what are the implications of them? Aren't they really what Jesus said to do? Aren't they really the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and you shall love your neighbors yourself. Aren't they really boiling it down to the same thing? Do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with God. But what do those mean? What does the great commandment mean? What do those three rules mean? How, how will I live if I do that? Where will I be when I get where I'm going if I follow that path? So there's another book that I bet many of you have read in a bunch of different covers. Charles Sheldon, In His Steps. The What Would Jesus Do book. Right? This is a great book. Go get it, read it. It's an easy novel. It's about the story of a church that was transformed when a homeless man came into the church and basically died and it led the pastor to reflect on how would this church how would I be changed if I lived out the great commandment what if I if I began each thing that I did what would Jesus do in this situation and how would it affect me how would it affect my family how would it affect my church how would it affect the town right and it kind of gives that that story of where will you be when you get where you're going if that's the roadmap that you use to get there. So this is another great book to take a look at sometime. Now, I think part of what Wesley was thinking was that, that with all of the excitement in the early church, the early Methodist church, the early societies, was that there was a lot of excitement in, in 
Acts in the first centuries. The church grew and it grew and it grew and eventually as it became more established, it became top heavy and it began to slow down and become an organization more than a group of brothers and sisters caring for the world and for each other, right? And this has gone through cycles and cycles and cycles. I think what he was afraid of was that that if the Methodists, if we as Christians were to lose that, that focus on do no harm, do good, stay in love with God, that where we'd be when we got where we're going was not where we intended to be, that we would be no different than, than the church that he was frustrated with. And he said that I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist, either in Europe or in America. But I am afraid, lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case, unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. And there's a, I think that that's where a lot of the reinvigoration within the church right now is going on, that, that, that kind of frustration with we need to break loose we need to 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 release the power this is a great example y'all are doing so many cool things and and if we were to take that and multiply it by all of our church that we do a lot of amazing things but there's there's so much more that we could be doing and there's so much more that could be a part of each person's every single day life so that's where the rules come from there's where the rules are are, are geared towards we're going to next week talk about the hard way. The last two are not too hard. Do good. Attend to the ordinances of God. I, those are not too hard. That do no harm one, though, is hard. So we'll talk about that next time. What does it really mean when Wesley talks about do no harm? Y'all got any questions? Anything you want to say? I'm actually sort of on time today. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. Well, why don't we close with a prayer? Gracious Lord, we do so much thank you for this day. We thank you for bringing us all together. We thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that, that it's not about the rules. It's about living the life and being the people that you would have us to be, to be the hands and feet, to be, to be your messenger, to be, to be those 70 who go out trusting in you to all of the villages and towns and, and take your message to them, trusting that, that you'll provide and that, that you'll be with us on the journey. Help us to be reinvigorated, to find our way to be your people each day. Be with us as we head out into our week with all of those cares and concerns and joys that we've lifted up together. Help us to come back together to continue learning and loving in your name. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Scott. We'll look forward to that. I was looking at that picture, looking up at John Wesley. There's a statue of him in the Wesley Center in London, and he was about five feet tall. He would come right there on me. Little bitty fellow, but named one of the top 50 people who ever lived in England. So we've been zipping through with our Bible verses, the fruit of the Spirit. We've been through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. What's next? Faithfulness. All right. Good. I just love those, so I'm hoping that you will with me. But our verse this week, a faithful man will be richly blessed. 
Proverbs 28:20. I bet that means a faithful woman too. So have a great week. <laughs>